you can have high standards without being a jerk. You, you, can, you can demand a lot from employees, from managers, from supervisors, without having to be, you know, that old school, oh my God, we messed up. You, you don't want to go near Brandon right now. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. This episode is kindly sponsored by Attractions.io, the guest experience platform behind Merlin Entertainment's San Diego Zoos and the PGA Championship's branded mobile apps. And just like us, the team at Attractions.io is on a mission to elevate the guest experience and ensure that they exceed the expectations of today's digitally native guests. By combining a branded mobile app with an operator console that consolidates behavioral data from every touch point in the guest journey, the Attractions.io platform empowers operators with the tools they need to increase guest satisfaction, spending, and loyalty. And to learn more about how Attractions.io can help you connect your end-to-end guest experience, visit attractions.io slash how it works. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. Woo! Yes. Yeah. So, So I have a question for you. All right. We've talked about how we are enthusiastic about the industry and how we love to go to places and we ride rides and all that kind of fun stuff. Have you ever built a ride or a replica of something that you could say, Hey, this is, this is my creation of a, of a ride or an attraction. Yes. When I was probably like middle school age ish or so i was a big fan of connects okay yeah and uh and they like came out with like a roller coaster series so i like bought the roller coaster like built like the model of it and then i was like well what can i do if i just like build it from the ground up and like don't even use the roller coaster car or the roller coaster track can i like make my own track out of it i so so i did that and I think I I tried to recreate my favorite roller coaster, Millennium Force. I think, you know, it was a a lesson in engineering, I would say, and uh, (laughs) momentum and maybe some physics and, you know, and all that. Uh, And then, you know, lately when, um, when my son Jacob, when he was, you know, learning to eat like solid food for the first time, like a lot of people do like the the airplane or the choo-choo train. Right. I would, I would recreate a lot of my favorite roller coasters with like some applesauce or sweet potato that way. I'll do it some yogurt. He likes it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about you? So mine goes back a little further uh, in terms of the, I guess you'd say toys or things that were made available to people to, to build things. Um, uh-huh. Have you ever heard of something called space warp? I apologize. No, I that's okay. Not. That's okay. I don't think it was all that popular, but 
and it might be might have been more of a science toy, but it had basically um, a spiral lift, if you will, right? And you had a ball, a little silver ball that would go on there, and it would lift this ball up to a, a certain height. You know, if it was on a tabletop, it might have been, I don't know, a foot and a half, two feet, probably. And you could make it as high as you wanted to based on how much material you had. And then once that ball got to the top, it would drop off onto these little two little tubes that you could make into track. So you could make it do loops and you can make it do spirals and helixes and, and all kinds of different things, bank turns and whatnot. And I don't even know where that came from. Like it was, it was long before I think I was really into roller coasters, but I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I would build all kinds of different um, layouts and it wasn't really conducive to try to replicate something that was already out there. But I remember trying to do loops and I even tried to do the, the interlocking loop, like on Loch Ness Monster, right? Yeah. That didn't work. Um, but, <laughs> but talk about lessons in physics, like this ball, it had no upstop wheels, right? It had no way to hold it onto the track. So if you got it going too fast, it would just fly right off. So uh -huh. it had to be, you know, really careful in how big the hill was versus how much you banked the turn and brought it around. So a lot of, a lot of ball bearings fell off the table and onto the floor as I was playing with that. But that's one thing that I, re I remember building uh, when I was younger. Very nice. Very yeah. nice. So why do you ask? Why do I ask? Because our guest today talked about when he was younger, he would take railroad track and put books underneath it to bank the turns. And that's one of the things that led him to really realize that his path needed to, uh, or track needed to, um, needed to go into the attractions industry. Yes, absolutely. Brandon Thumb is an experienced theme park executive, and we get to hear all about his leadership philosophy. We get to hear about his career path. We get to hear about uh, uh, really, you know, networking and making meaningful connections within the industry, uh, and just a lot of a lot of really good stories and, uh, and and about building a career in the business. And what I love about the way Brandon kind of explains these things is that there's always a lesson in there, right? There's always something to learn from it. And one of the questions we asked was about, you know, if a leader fails and ultimately it came down to, well, what did you learn? And I really appreciated the way he shared that because I think too often, if somebody makes a mistake, it's about the mistake, right? And it's about the past and why you screwed up and how you screwed up versus, yes, we need to talk about that, but we also need to focus on the future and what did you learn? What are you not going to do in the future? Or what are you going to do in the future to make sure that that doesn't happen again? Yeah, this is one of those interviews where, you know, as we're as we're listening to, you know, his leadership style and his philosophy, uh, you can't help but think, you know, I'd like to work for you someday. You know, you'd be the kind of leader that that I would love to have, you know, in, in terms of just the way that he, you know, manages and develops. And, you know, he talks about just the engagement of the team. And when you have engaged leaders and and that they help kind of bring that now to the to their levels of those who are reporting to them, whether it's leaders or frontline employees, uh, just about creating just a, a fantastic culture. So is it time to uh, get to this interview with Brandon? Let's do that. Let's uh, bank the turns and head right into it. Hey, Brandon, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. We are so excited to have you on. How are you? I'm doing great. Nice to see you both again, <laughs> virtually, I should say. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> exactly. Nice to see you as well through through Zoom, through virtually, hopefully uh, in person again sometime soon. But in the meantime, Brandon, uh, can you give us just a, a quick background? Tell us about yourself and uh, just an overview on, on your career. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll go back to the, the start where my very first job was in finance, actually, in, in banking. So I was a, um, a, a credit analyst for a oil and gas lender. Sounds exciting, right? <laughs> Um, and I did that for about two years and realized, uh, oh my God, what have I done? This can't be the rest of my, the rest of my life. So, um, I mean, it was a little late to think of for myself like this, uh, in my lifetime, but I'm glad I, I got to that point. And I thought, what do I really like doing? What, what am I obsessed with? What's my, what's my passion as, as so many people have told me, had told me to do up to that point, I ignored was, uh, theme parks. I mean, it was, it was going to screamscape.com. It was you know, building train tracks when I was three or four years old and banking the turns with books to make them roller coasters. I mean, there's like countless stories that point to the fact that, you know, I should have been involved in this industry from, from day one. So um, what I didn't realize is that there was such a gigantic industry out there and there were so many parks and so many manufacturers and IAPA even existed. I didn't realize that until I was in my mid twenties. Um, so I had a really good college advisor in grad school, and she said, you need to look up their trade show, and you need to go. Um, and that's when I found out about the show ambassador program and joined that program. Um, and then, I mean, the rest of it, you know, the whole career just took off after that. I met some great people at the show and made some good connections that got me to uh, Universal um, in Orlando. Um, while, you know, my first job was actually at Busch Gardens Williamsburg as an intern. So I was working at Land of the Dragons, and then I went to IAPA that, that fall and um, got an opportunity to come down to Orlando in the summer and started working at Seuss Landing um, and had a great job at the High in the Sky Seuss Charlie train ride. Um, <laughs> loved it there. One of the best jobs I ever had in the industry, for sure. Um, and then uh, met some more people at the next IAPA, got some connections with Merlin, um, was able to move into a sort of a professional salary position uh, in, in the industry, which was always my goal was to you know make this a career. Um, and then, uh, went back to Universal um, and then uh, an old contact moved to Tampa from Williamsburg and said, hey, I'm hiring for a director at Busch Gardens and would you be interested? Uh, and th that was uh, totally unexpected, but I jumped at the opportunity and um, and that was sort of my path within SeaWorld, at least for the last six, six odd years was um, starting as that director role in Tampa uh, and then moving up to Sesame Place in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, the original one. Now there's two, but the OG, <laughs> spending about a year and a half there. Uh, that was a great learning experience too. Uh, small park environment, but had a water park aspect and a dry park aspect and an entertainment, um, huge IP aspect to it too. So that was a great learning experience. And then came back to Tampa to run Adventure Island, uh, Bush Gardens Water Park, which is right across the street from Bush Gardens, Tampa. And been doing that right up until about January where um, I decided to walk away and TBD what my next steps are actually. Yeah. Well, thank you for kind of running through that. Brandon, I'd love to go back to the IAPA ambassador program because you said from there it was kind of a springboard and lots of connections. And I'm very jealous of you and Josh for have been, you know, being part of that because I was never part of that. I got to work with the ambassadors over the years. But um, can you talk a little bit about how being in that position of an ambassador kind of put you in the position to make all those connections? Well, I, I think the best part about it was it it immersed you in in the week rather than rather than just going to one networking event and putting all your eggs in in your basket, you know, mentally 
and going to that networking event and thinking, I've got to get something out of this, or this has been a complete waste. Instead, it was a 10 day slog, right? Where we just long days, early mornings, late nights, Josh is nodding his head because he remembers. Um, but, but what that did was it took the pressure off. So I think it allowed me to have a lot more genuine conversations with people because I wasn't particularly interested in what each conversation was going to get for me. It was more of a, this is freaking fun. And I love this. And, oh, this person, you know, knows this ride at this park. I want to go talk to them. And so it was just sort of a, a natural arc, um, if you will, it, it sort of turned out that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am nodding my head substantially. <laughs> yeah, I remember early days, early nights, and then yeah, 100% being immersed into it and seeing the amount of uh, the amount of people at the show who were who were curious about the ambassadors and and where they wanted to go within their career and how it opened up all those doors and uh, it, it kind of just the the overall exposure to the industry. Uh, but it also require it requires a lot of effort too it's not it's you know it's it's not like here are all the contacts that are handed to you can can you talk a little bit about maybe i would say like networking strategy whether it's through iapa and the ambassador program or even just in general the way that you've been able to i would say build those contacts and connections and get to the point where like you just said you know a, a colleague uh you know from William, williamsburg was in tampa and then called you because you had fostered that connection you had developed that relationship uh so we'd love to to talk a little bit about that as well yeah, well, I, you know, everyone's experience is different. So I'm not saying I've, I've figured out how to do this the expert way, but uh, what's worked for me is that the connections have to be authentic and genuine or the other person sees right through it. And honestly, your heart's not in it if it's not on your end too. So uh, when, I, when I first started networking at IAPA, well, I would say networking, and I found myself in these conversations when I threw out the notion of, of what is this going to do for me and, and more immerse myself into how can this be a fun connection, that turned out to be the best strategy for me to make those genuine connections. So uh, an example is, is someone from Universal that I, that I met on the floor after a trade show floor tour that I'd done. And he was impressed by, um, you know, how I, how I led the group and I guess the, the, the guest service, you know, I gave to the group and, you know, whatever, whatever he, he saw in me, he, he wanted to pull me aside and, and make that connection. And, and he, he didn't get me a job right on the floor there. He, he didn't even get me a job five months down the road. I mean, it was probably eight or nine months later where he made a connection with someone else at Universal that I was able to um, talk to in person and get an interview for a status lead job at the Sky Trolley. So all those conversations I had with him beforehand were about Bush Gardens Williamsburg and his experience with the park there. And I mean, it was conversation I loved. So it was easy to stay on the phone for longer than I even anticipated to, because it, it became a conversation that we were just sharing stories. So when, when I go to events that I happen, I get the chance to talk to people that are clearly in my shoes just 10 years ago. I stress that I, I say, don't check off, you know, the number of people you have to talk to or look at their badge first and then look at them, just make genuine connections. You never know what's going to happen. Um, and it has to be authentic. You have to get to know them. Well, Brandon, you, you bring up another really good point that I think people don't necessarily realize when they're first getting into the kind of the networking game or trying to get into the, the industry is that it does take time, right? And it could be a connection of a connection of a connection of a connection, or it could be the conversation that you're having today pays off 
three years from now. That's right. Right. So how do you, I know you, you just mentioned, you know, working with younger leaders and, and, you know, being a mentor to them, how do you get that point across, or at least try to try to let them know that you don't have to, you know, you're not going to get a job right now from that person, but it's okay to be patient and wait it out. Yeah. So I, well, the first thing I do is, you know, I look at, the, they're usually, you know, 19, 20 years old, they're at IAPA. I didn't come to IAPA until I was 25. So I look at them and that's the first thing I say is you guys are already five years ahead of me. So, you know, you're okay. You're doing great. <laughs> you're ahead of the game. So give them a little perspective on how long the journey can be because, you know, I remember how impatient I was and, and how, um, just eager I was to to get something now so I could, you know, get going. And uh, that's hard to put aside. So I, I just, my favorite piece of advice is, is to, to tell them that, that a lot of your best memories are going to be these years when you're, when you're trying and you're making mm-hmm. those connections and you get those little wins, but they're going to feel better than when you get a promotion in five years. I mean, and that's true. I mean, I really, I remember those first feelings of elation I had those first couple of years and nothing's really beat those. So that's, I try to give them perspective on that, whether or not they, they really get it. I, that's up to them. But yeah. 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 100%. I, so Brandon would love to shift gears a little bit and really talk about your leadership strategy and kind of things that uh, that you've brought into just your own way of leading employees, leading a team. And one of the things that um, uh, that you mentioned to us is about enabling leaders and how that plays success uh, just in, uh, in in the overall business operation. So I, I think the first kind of part of the question is uh, the difference between enabling and empowering leaders and how those two might differ and, and the role that they play in overall uh, success of the parks that you've managed. Okay. Yeah, well, um, first of all, I, I think enabling and empowering, whatever perfect combination that is, is has been vital to the success of the parks that I've been part of. I mean, that would be my first line in, in a leadership book if I wrote one was like, you have to let your leaders gain their confidence, try things out. And then, first of all, experience some some small failures, hopefully small failures, and then also celebrate in the big wins where you're pushing the whole business forward. Um, vitally important to me. And it's, it's whenever I've been in a leadership position where where I have, you know, eager leaders underneath me that, that just want to grow, that's the best. You don't you don't always have leaders like that, but when you do have leaders like that, it's like, it's like the perfect recipe, you know, for, for success because you're eager, they're eager, you know, you you can take chances and, and you watch them kind of grow and, and, you know, just uh, get, get great at what they do. But I guess blindly enabling people might be, you know, a little risky. I think um, empowering the way I see it, and you guys are probably going to correct me because you're so much better at this stuff than I am. But the w- the way I see it is enabling would just be, you know, hey, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this assignment today, or 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 you know, I- I'm gonna let you sort of decide what um, what the quick queue inventory is for the day, for example, right? Um, empowering would would to me would be. I'm going to let you run the quick queue business um, that's under your, your um, line of business and you're responsible for it. So you're going to decide if we need to either restrict inventory or increase inventory for the day, you're going to decide how the staffing looks and, and whether or not on really busy days, we need to add people to protect the value of the product. And we're going to look back at it on a week by week or a month by month basis. And, and we're going to gauge your success or your failure. And if you, if you fail, it's, it's not going to be, I'm going to strip this all away from you. We're going to work together to make this successful. And you're going to understand why it failed. 
Um, and again, this doesn't, you have to have engaged leaders to have this work. Um, and I've been fortunate, very fortunate. And I think our industry is fortunate, honestly, to have this, to have a lot of engaged leaders in it. Um, but that's been my experience with that success part of it. Yeah. So I, I like your description of both enabling and empowering. And the reason that, that I think that those two words kind of go together is because I think you have to enable people to have the confidence, right? You have to enable their decision-making, right? You know, it can be far too easy to say, Brandon, this is what you're going to do. And then you're just following orders versus now I'm going to ask you to use your mind, right? And then it feels like your view of empowerment goes a little deeper into the success, the failure of, of a business or, you know, having a, a larger, larger bit of responsibility. But I think either way, you have to have both of those, like that perfect storm of, the engaged leader, right? And then the ability to give them some, some responsibility. So I'd love to dive a little deeper into what that looks like um, for, for you as a leader when let's say Josh is your is your engaged leader, right? And you you kind of gave that example of the quick cue, but um thinking even even kind of more peeling back the onion about what that looks like and how that happens, because I think a lot of people struggle with that. They say, Josh, you're empowered. I don't know what that means or what that looks like, but it was a good word. I read it in the book. So here's what we're going to do. So I'd love it if you could maybe, maybe give us a, a little more insight into what that looks like from your perspective. Well, the, so the success I've had in, in my, in my experience with, with what I consider to be empowered leaders, I think it comes because of the relationship I have with them. So um, it, it's, it's a really good one-on-one -on -one relationship um, where, you know, we're not, we're not buddies or best friends, but we are, like respected cohorts that can laugh together, that can, you know, figuratively cry together when we have a bad day, that can vent together um, and then celebrate the wins together. And then we can all go, you know, for, for drinks afterwards. And, and then, then, you know, then, then we're out of the business. Right. But, but that's, it's, it's, it's more about, to me, it's, it's the, it's the constant touch points that I can have with the leader throughout the day. So it's not necessarily a strict one-on-one -on -one that I have to set every, every week, even though that, that does help and that does keep a leader honest to make sure they're touching base, but it's more about the open door policy and grabbing the, my, you know, a culinary leader when I'm doing a walk around the park and I'm looking at, at the food carts for the day and, and then grabbing the, the aquatics leader when, I'm, when I wanna see how the lines are moving and, and what our tube counts like. So instead of me just in a silo walking around the park and making all these observations to me, it's always worked better if, if I turn that into an opportunity to have a, a one-on-one -on -one touch point with the respective person that is sort of running that department. Uh, and then we can experience that, that challenge or whatever the, the, the successor or failure of that day is together. How does that differ then? It, you know, in a theme park, you know, there's multiple tiers, multiple tiers of leadership, right? So if, if you are, uh, pulling aside maybe a, a direct report, you know, someone who, who reports to you directly. Uh, I imagine that that conversation or, or the way in which you would enable that leader or even just those walk around the parks might differ if it is someone who's reporting to someone who's reporting mm -hmm. to you. And curious about managing that effectively because uh, part of enabling or, or empowering the leaders would also want to not be stepping on their toes. But at the same time, you are that person's leader because you're overseeing whether it's the entire yeah. department or the entire park or the entire operation. Right. Well, I, I, I like um, when, when people 
sort of see the, my style um, of that sort of, you know, one-on-one -on -one touch points and open door and, you know, open conversation. Um, and then I see them emulate that to their direct leader. And, you know, maybe the challenges are a little bit smaller in scale, but um, the, the uh, enthusiasm is still just as, just as much there. Um, so that's one measure of success when, when I see, you know, that sort of, of um, empowerment and, and uh, sort of teamwork between other direct reports and their direct reports. And I see that happening without me, then uh, even more success gets, gets done right before my eyes. And that's, that's a really, really cool and fulfilling part of the job is to see other, you know, leaders that have hopefully learned from me pass along the good stuff um, what I would consider the good stuff to, to their leaders. And I can see that um, kind of emulated with them. So maybe on the flip side of this, like we're talking about enabling and empowering and, you know, engage leaders. What happens when one of those folks, you, you enable them, right. And they completely miss the boat, right. And they completely, um, uh, you know, fall on their face or whatever the case may be. What is your reaction in those situations? Well, I, so I, I've always tried to avoid being somebody that that somebody might be scared of if they mess up because I, I've had, you know, early on in my career, I've had plenty of people that I, I didn't, you know, it would be a nightmare scenario to, to mess up in front of them. And I never thought that really fostered the most confidence, the most creativity from me. Um, so I've sort of tried to pass that on and, and it, you can have high standards without being a jerk. It, you, you, can, you can demand a lot from employees, from managers, from supervisors, without having to be, you know, that old school, oh my God, we messed up, but you, you, you don't wanna go near Brandon right now. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I like when, and this has happened, when somebody will mess up and they'll go to me and they'll be like, all right, first of all, I messed up. <laughs> and I'll start the conversation with that. And it sort of takes the the pressure off and almost, you know, as long this isn't, I'm not talking about safety or somebody getting hurt, of course, but it's, it's something that, you know, we kept that uh, food cart open with three people and uh, turns out we only need one and the dip and dots cart never opened. And that's on me, like that kind of example where we, it takes the pressure off just to sort of add a little bit of humor almost to the conversation saying, Brandon, you're not going to like what I'm about to say. And I go, <laughs> all right, what do you got? <laughs> And it, it turns into a kind of a self-fulfilling conversation where it ends with, well, okay, so what'd you learn? And usually by that time, it's, it's well, I learned not to do this. I'm like, exactly. So go out and don't do it again. <laughs> and then when you have that style, it makes those conversations much easier. And then if somebody does make a mistake, then they're, they're you know, they, they feel bad about the mistake, but they genuinely want to improve and they don't want to hide it from their boss either. Yeah, I, I want them to feel bad about the mistake because not because of my reaction. I want them to feel bad about the mistake because of what they missed out on doing right and how that would have either solved the guest situation better or, you know, made our GSAT score a little higher that week or, you know, what have you, whatever they're involved in. Yeah. Yeah. So Brandon, I'm curious, where does this come from? Right. Because we all learn and we have experiences and we've all got mentors and leaders and things like that. So how has your, um, leadership style developed over the years? And have there been specific experiences that you've had that say, I'm going to go this way or this way, you know, when you're in that fork in the road where you could take your leadership style in, in many different ways? Well, I've had a lot of 
really good leaders um, pretty much in every place I've worked, honestly, um, even in the banking world. I mean, even early on, yeah, I had people that I looked up to. Um, so I, I, th I think I was being shaped very early on as to what kind of leader I wanted to be. And again, this is, it's all my perspective. It doesn't mean it's right, um, but it, it's what works for me and what makes me feel good about how I impact and treat other people on my team. So, and, and I've taken the best from the leaders that I've learned from the most. And um, my first uh, VP in Tampa, when I was a director um, was, was kind of like that. I mean, he, I, I didn't want to mess up, but not because of his reaction, because I, I didn't want to mess up for, for him and the park and the, and the operations team's reputation. And I just, it made me sick to my stomach. So I tried to, you know, I, that's the kind of feeling that I try to emulate with, with, with my leaders and my teams is I want them to, to think that way. Um, and the best mentors I've had, by the way, are, and, and this is go, goes beyond making mistakes, but they're the ones that, that really know what it's like. Um, or I guess I should say, know the benefit of treating people, uh, like humans on the human scale. Um, so, uh, just a quick example, uh, we had a CEO at, at SeaWorld that I absolutely loved. He, he moved on to another company and um, he visited Tampa and I'd only met him once. And he remembered my first name, even remembered the fact that um, you know, I went to a certain school in Virginia and we talked about that again. And I was so impressed because the company has thousands and thousands of people. And here he is remembering my name and just having a conversation. And it was a high stakes tour of our, or of our animal care facility, or I don't, I don't know what we were doing that day, but you know, there wasn't, there was an importance tag to his visit, obviously, but he took minutes out of this one hour tour and talked to me. And that just made a huge impact on me. And um, I can think of where I was when that happened. And I can think of what I thought about when that happened. And it, it did have a huge impact on how I sort of treated leadership going forward. So Brandon, thinking back, what do you see as being, or, or do you have any moments that you consider to be one of the most fulfilling moments of your career thus far? Oh man. So I, I thought about this question for a, for a long time and I've got, can I give two examples? Is, is that okay? Sure. Yeah, time. Okay. <laughs> so um, my first example is not really a career. It's more of an IAPA story. And it was, it was my first IAPA and it was more of a, oh my gosh, I'm in the right field story. So we were, and it was fulfilling. That is the right word for it. We were at a lunch. It was a lunch and learn, I believe. It was a Disney sponsored lunch and learn. And this was the unveil of the Magic Bands. And I think it was 2013. Um, might have the year wrong on that, but I think that was my first show. And that was the first time this happened. So as ambassadors, we were tasked to hand out these boxes at the end of this presentation. And they had the Magic Bands in them. And they also had a set of Mickey ears that lit up um, it synchronized to whatever you know music or show was being portrayed and it was it was their also their their preview of what they were going to do at the castle with the with the light up beers that they did the next year so really exciting stuff and i had no idea how much the room would change so it, all these people in their suits and their name tags and they you know not really talking to each other sort of keeping to themselves on their cell phones writing notes and then we hand out this this box and they start opening it up and disney the Disney people start playing this music and to put your hats on and everybody, you know, you have a magic, a magic band gift in there. People just totally reverted to their childhood selves. They started taking selfies. They started smiling, laughing. The whole room changed 
And I was in the back just beaming because I was like a year ago or like a year and a half ago, I was in a banking office sending spreadsheets to somebody I would never see. And I'm in this room, like knowing this is the industry I want to be in at this point, like no looking back. And that was such a fulfilling moment. I'll never forget that one. So you were, my... to, you were to share too. And by the way, I was in the room for that. I remember getting that. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember getting the ears. Um, the, the person I was sitting with, she had two kids at home. She's like, I only have one set of ears. I gave her my set of ears so she could take them home. Um, yeah, that was a, it was a, it was a electric in there. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. That's so cool. You were there. That's funny. Yeah. And okay. So the second career one is, is a recent one and it's a little heavy, but it has a happy ending. So we, um, when you're in the water park world, what you always fear is a drowning, you know, a death, a big safety incident. And you read about them in other parks sometimes, and it's it's just a tragedy. And you hope um, that it doesn't happen to you. So uh, in July at the water park I was at, uh, we had a two, I think it was two years old, two year old boy who came out of the wave pool and, you know, was coughing up water. And at first it looked like he was, he was choking on something, but, um, a, a well-skilled lifeguard to look at that and, and know that that's probably dry drowning, just a lot of water and that water's still in their lungs. And, and now it's turning into a serious situation. Um, I was right there at the scene, just by chance, I was saying bye to a, a lifeguard that was leaving for the season and heard all this commotion. And, um, you know, for, for all of your facilities, oof, all of your training, your leadership skills, your, um, your EAP, your emergency action plan, for all of that to to come together and and work the way it should is is probably was probably the most fulfilling part of uh, the most fulfilling moment in my career. So, I mean, this this boy did lose his pulse. He was not breathing. Um, people were hysterical. This was a crowded summer day um, at the wave pools. Lots of people were trying to give their own care, which, you know, wasn't the right thing. Like he's drowning. What are you doing? Or sorry, he's choking. What are you doing um, to our lifeguards just trying to give care? So I had a role in this and my role was to create some crowd control. So I had some very choice words for everybody that was too close to get everyone a nice arc of, of care. And it, it worked. And, and I had to do that. And then to look back at my other managers who were, who were part of this day and all of them were, each of them was, was, were doing something important that were, that were vital to the care of that person that I didn't have to dictate. So, you know, sending the paramedics into the right part of the park, clearing the crowds by the wave pool so that, you know, the stretcher could be put in the, rock, the right way. Um, the security team doing a fantastic job of crowd control so people weren't videotaping and, and trying to record the incident like some people do. It, it was just a a case study in what can go right. And I, I felt so fortunate because sometimes that doesn't go like that. It doesn't go that way, but for it to be part of a situation where it went right. And what I mean by where it went right was um, after a couple of cycles of CPR, he started breathing on his own um, and his family was able to help him get onto the stretcher with the EMTs and then go off to the hospital where he, he did fine. He made a full recovery. Um, so, you know, the whole breakdown of that day and I, you know, the last podcast you guys had where you were talking about the feeling that you have driving home after a busy day and, you know, the kind of fulfillment you can have in that. I can't really, I, the emotion that I had was just, it was all over the place. I was still you know, sad for what I saw. I was, it was a little bit in shock because um, it was a dramatic scenario. I was so proud of my team and my lifeguards. They did such a great job. 
to remember their training and not listen to the noise all around them and give the care they needed to give in a, like in a relaxed and, and professional way. It was just a, a great story. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. It's, it, you know, it's definitely one of those, uh, one of those circumstances that, that you train for, you plan for, you, you do all the things in preparation for it and hope that it never happens. And then when you're in the middle of that situation, it, it I've got to imagine that it's hard to to really think about like okay what what did we do all this time preparing for staying calm like you said eliminating the noise because you're doing this in the middle of operations as well uh and I imagine a, a lot of people were probably looking looking to you for you know for guidance as far as okay what you know what should we do so part of it is about staying calm but also maintaining authority and being able to really cert, you know hone in on what needs to be done right now yeah that that's that you nailed it there and um you know we we had a, a nice couple of hours afterwards where you know we were able to sort of debrief uh, we actually had another scenario that happened 3 hours later that was very similar um in terms of a CPR scenario that actually also turned out okay so i never been tested in my career so many times in that one day but um, yeah, I mean, I was just, the lifeguards, um, the way that they just relied on their train, I was just so proud of really everybody involved in the, in the park management and the park training. Um, it was a memorable and fulfilling day in that sense. Yeah. And so many of the lessons that you learned to that point, like you said, kind of came together, whether it was at part of that park or just things you've learned over the years in terms of crowd control or just knowing people had to be in the right spaces. So, you know, it's interesting how all of that kind of comes together for a perfect storm. Yeah. In a, in a, in a two minute moment, by the way, where you, you can't really step aside and go, okay, what's next? You just have to act. So yeah. Yeah. Well said though. Yeah. So I'm curious, Brandon, if you could go back and think about what you know now and talk to Brandon when he first started in the industry, whether it was, for you know, beginning as an as a as an ambassador or your first job in the industry, what are some things that you would advise Brandon on? I would tell him to slow down and take a deep breath. That's what I would probably say. <laughs> I, I I and maybe it was a, a maybe it was a factor of my age at the time. I was one of the older ambassadors, right? I felt like I was coming in a little late. Um, I was in graduate school, so all of my fellow graduate students all getting really nice paying jobs and and consultancy and all this. And I'm making, you know, nine bucks an hour, you know, or 10 bucks an hour with a Seuss outfit on. So it was, it, I, I, I needed to just slow down and, you know, put myself in my own little personal silo and say, your story is different than everybody else's, just like everybody else's story is different from everybody else's and just have fun and enjoy the experience. And for the most part, I did. I, I didn't fail on that on all accounts. I mean, I really did make a lot of good memories, but too many times I was focused in the back of my head and putting too much pressure on myself for what's next, what's next. So I would tell tell him to just cool it. <laughs> now, also thinking back, if you could take one day and be a frontline team member at any attraction, whether it's a, a theme park, zoo, museum, aquarium, whatever it is, uh, what would you want to do that day as as a frontline team member? I, I would go back to Bush Gardens, Williamsburg, and drive a Rhine River boat for a day. That was such a cool job. First of all, it was trackless, so you know while you had 
buoys that you needed to turn around on, the speed was not dictated. Um, neither was the direction of your track around those buoys. So you could take a few deviations. Hope no one's listening from Bush Gardens that just admitted that I've just violated a bunch of uh, policies. But it, the guest interaction was great. It, it was a escape from the the, the may you know the, the melee of the crowds and the long lines. It was a, a 15 minute sort of relaxed you know journey around the river. Um, so it, 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 that, that probably was the most satisfying guest facing job I ever had or guest facing position. And I, I can tell, uh, just based on my own perspective from looking back that the, the happiest I've been is when I've been interacting with guests face to face. So that's what I would choose. Well, speaking of the front line, and you mentioned our, our last podcast that was, well, actually, when this airs, it'll be two podcasts ago where we kind of <laughs> dove into the the evolving um, uh, nature of frontline team members. I would love to get your perspective on that as well, because you've worked in so many different places. You've got a, a, a good breadth of your career. Um, what do you see as sort of the evolution of the duties of the frontline team member, the importance, you know, where do we put their value? Are we, are we asking them to do, do different things? I'm curious kind of what you're seeing from your perspective. I think the frontline role is um, more important than it's ever been. Uh, and I, I think that for a couple of different reasons, first of all, you know, we, after, after COVID coming out of COVID, uh, even the huge companies with, with a, a lot more cash than, you know, maybe smaller companies had, were worried about just running out of cash and, and, and keeping their businesses afloat. So there were a lot of tough decisions made on, you know, guest facing positions that were deemed, you know, let's put this aside for now because we just need to open the gates up and get, and get people back in to get our business going again. So there's, there's a little bit of that lag effect because I still see that at, at different parks and different different uh, venues and attractions is, is this sort of pulling back of staff, um, you know, to, to save, to save some money and, and make sure the, the performance, uh, future performance of the park is, is locked in. And then there's also this, you know, this sort of not, I wouldn't say automation. I, I just say technology is, is, is totally changing the way that some line schedules are being written. Right. So you have really good, smart, kiosks now that are out front out in front of parks and um and i've noticed this even over the last four or five years the guest relation line has gone has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter because not only can they now print off tickets at kiosks they can also redeem a, a dining package they can get their skip the line pass print it off so you know all these things that were traditionally well i mean you can get your ticket at the kiosk or you can order your ticket online but you still have to you know redeem your voucher for this wristband and you have to go to guest relations we're Parks are starting to solve that, um, which just takes the the touch points that people have with actual human beings out of it um, in the guest arrival process. And, you know, even when you're enjoying attractions and shows, I would say in the food and dining um, uh, process, too. I mean, mobile ordering has really taken off and the parks that I've been involved with the last few years have really embraced mobile ordering. So instead of three or four people manning a kiosk, we have you know, one person preparing the food and, and one person as the touch point, getting the mobile orders in and then, you know, presenting the order. So you think about the the problems that frontline team members had 10 years ago versus what they had now. And I think it's so different. I, I, th I think, you know, there, there are challenges with, with TikTok influencers. There's challenges with people trying to go viral. We had some 
crazy things happen at the water park recently. People just trying to get their five seconds of fame and what they were doing was ridiculous. But there's a frontline team member now having to deal with that, having to deal with somebody trying to, you know, get their tube into a, a, a lake reservoir to take a, a funny video. I mean, we don't train that. We, you, you know, we don't, we don't have that specific example. Well, now we do, but, but these, these sorts of scenarios just keep coming up that add to the complexity of the problems a frontline team member can have. And in a lot of cases, there's less of them there. So I'll give you the mobile ordering example. Somebody might come to them with a food quality issue or a pricing issue, or, hey, this isn't what I ordered, or your app's not working. And the frontline team member is there, you know, and five years ago, they're just the cashier taking orders. And now they're, they're talking about the app and they're talking about, you know, what went wrong. And it's, it, it, it really is, it's adding complexity to a lot of the frontline positions. And, um, you know, I, I, I think our training has a long way to go in our industry to catch up to that, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, the the examples that you just gave, you know, there's so many of the functional mechanics that are that are taken out of out of the role. And I know Matt and I, we talked about this in, you know, in, in that what two episodes ago now, uh, which then changes the landscape of the role. So they're not, you know, the cashier role, there's more technology, more automation that's able to replace that. But you know, the examples that you just gave, they're 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 tech support and their security, you know, for for the guests. So uh, and we're going to get to a point we can't even really call them a frontline team member anymore because that that just implies such a level of of you know entry level. I mean, we're still hiring you know many people who are in high school and people who are in college, and now we're we're putting a lot more on them than we were five, ten. 15. I mean, there was already a lot on them, and now, like I said, the you know the dynamic in the landscape is you know is changing altogether. So it's uh, it's just fascinating to see as far as what the frontline role looks like five years from now, 10 years from now. Yeah, yeah it's, it's changed so fast. You're right. Who knows what it could look like it, it, five, 10 years from now. I, I hope, so yeah, training is, is a big part of it. And, and I know that's just such a generalized word, but, um, and I, I can't tell you really what the solution would be. I, I think, Matt, you might have a better strategy for that answer, but it, it just needs to account for that complexity. I guess that's the the simplified way to put it. Well, I think we need we need to stay current on what those needs are and as best as we can stay ahead of them. Now, that's not always possible, right? You're not going to be able to anticipate the TikToker coming in and trying to take your tube and putting it in the in the lake, but is there a is there a similar scenario that you can say, okay, this is what happened in the past. This is how we handled it. If you get something like this, here you go. Or it's also about having the resources at their fingertips so that they know where to go. So let's not just use the technology for our guests, but let's use the technology for our team. And I'll mm -hmm. go back to a couple of years ago. And, the, you know, obviously things have moved forward since then, but this is a very, very simple example. I was at Lowe's, you know, getting some pipes or tubing or something, not paint like Josh does. Um, but I simply went up to a, a team member and I said, can you tell me where XYZ is? And they pulled out a tablet, size of a phone, and they went boop, 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 aisle three, boop, 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 you know, bin, whatever it was. And it was right there. So they didn't have to go looking for it. Lowe's is a huge store. I don't know if that person was the first day on the job, right? But they had the resource, the technology in their hand to provide me the exact information that I needed. Um, luckily, I wasn't a TikToker trying to, you know, do something funny, but they had that information. And what I, when I think about what we need to do to empower, enable 
you know, prepare our teams for those kind of things. It really is about anticipating as many as many of those things as we can, but also like you said, you're taking your your team and they're, you're walking around with them. So as many experiences as you can provide for them so that they can be comfortable and confident when those things do arise, I think the better. And I think sometimes when we cut down on the, the frontline staff, we also cut down on the training, right? And a lot of times training is the first to go. Well, does that eight hours really need to be eight hours? Can we do that in four, right? And then the people are a little less ready when they're when they're out in the front line so maybe we can get together and talk about training uh for a while um at, at another time but uh those are just some of my thoughts based on what you just mentioned yeah that's great i, I was sort of a, silently agreeing with you every step of the way there matt <laughs> awesome awesome so brandon this is a just been such a fantastic conversation we're starting to get towards the end and, and wind down this interview here but uh in the meantime if people want to get a hold of you directly or uh, if they want to learn more about you where would you send them <laughs> i okay so i i don't have my work email anymore obviously so I, I'm, I'm no longer employed by my previous employer i'm, I'm uh, sort of in a transitionary uh, phase so there really is an email for that so my personal email is the best um, do you want me to give that to you verbally over the podcast or do you want me to? Sure. sure. Yeah. It's, it's my first name, brandon.jthom at gmail.com. And my LinkedIn is, is active. I'm, I'm on it all the time. Uh, it's just my first and last name. You can look me up pretty easily there. So um, I would love to touch base with whoever, you know, listens to this or watches this. So Brandon, first of all, thank you for your time. This has been fascinating. Always great to catch up. Um, but I have one more question for you. And I'm, I'm thinking back to one of the first things you said where you were taking railroad track and putting books under it to angle it and things like that. So now we're all you know, enthusiasts. We've been talking a lot about leadership and business operations, but I want to ask you an enthusiast question. What's your favorite ride attraction experience as a guest? Oh my gosh. That you've experienced oh, over the last uh, however many years. Okay. My favorite ride or experience could be a show. Well, sure. I'll give you, open it up, anything. Okay. Well, actually, no, I, I'm not going to go the show route. I, I'm going to, and, and this is probably a lot of people's favorite ride right now. So this is going to be pretty lame, but I have a good reason for it. Flight of Passage. Um, I, I loved that movie in college and it was actually, um, it was shown for free in theaters in my college town. We had something terrible happen in our college town. So the theaters decided to show this movie for free and we all went and I have such a memory of this movie. And when that land opened and I went on that ride, it was hard not to get re like really emotional about it because I was, it was so immersive and it was so well done. I, I was just grinning ear from ear. And I, I don't remember the last time I walked out of a ride that, enthusiastic about it so that's my answer okay i'd write that any day of the week <laughs> <laughs> great answer excellent uh brandon uh, like i mentioned this has just been just so fantastic uh, just so great to uh to be able to chat with you today and uh as we start to wrap up here for everyone out there who is watching and listening just remember we are all attraction pros thanks for listening to the attraction pros podcast Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.